0: Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green, and I'm Dr. Akiva Daum, and And welcome welcome to Interesting Interesting Questions.
1: I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in
0: education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and get people to think about things in a different way. Welcome to Parshat Nitzavim. Avi, we again are talking about idolatry in this Parsha. Right away. Right away we go straight into Kadosh uh, Baruch reminding us that we were taken out of a nation, out of Nitzrayim, and that we need to be really careful to not do anything that's related to idolatry. So, Why don't you talk to us a little bit about why is it that this, I don't even know how many times at this point in the Torah, we've been warned against idolatry. And I get it. That was common. Obviously we, this was the first monotheistic religion, but tell us, tell us more about why this needed to be reminded so many times.
1: So I'm going to suggest that this isn't a reminder. It isn't even a warning. This is actually a um, a nevuah, a prophecy by Moshe. He's not saying don't, or this will happen if. He's saying this is going to happen. It's a surety for him. And he talks about how there will be idolatry, and that will be what turns Hashem's face away from Bnei Israel, and then they will be overcome by their uh, by their enemies. And things will get bad, and then the next parak talks about how, and then the people will do tshuva and they will return to Hashem, and they will uh, find favor with Hashem again, and they'll be saved. And we see this when we look at the neviim over and over again. It's it's called the the cycle of sin and tshuva. Um, we see it happening regularly, um, and. I would almost say we can see it today. We can see it whether it's in our lives as individuals or whether it's in the actions of the Jewish people as a whole. Um, and while idolatry is not as prevalent as it might have been in the times when the Torah was written or even in the time of the prophets, I want to suggest that we have replaced Baal and some of the other idols with other things that we worship, whether it's money, whether it's fame, whether it is celebrity. Um, And so when we look and strive for those things as opposed to lives of meaning, lives of goodness, that is when we find ourselves straying away from Hashem. And in fact, I might argue that, generally speaking, when you look at people who are striving for those things, right, the idea—and this is where we may get into the conversation, because this is more your field than mine—but the idea of justifying the ends, uh, justifying the means to serve the ends, becomes more commonplace, right? Um, and so, therefore, people will do what needs to be done in order to reach the the thing they think is right. right? If, if I serve the almighty dollar, then cheating people to get some is fair because everybody does it. If I'm backstabbing somebody else because that's what celebrities do, then it's okay. But I'll turn it back over to you, Akiva, and let
0: you share your thoughts on that. So it's definitely something that is very prevalent. And, you know, it's interesting to me that when you specifically point out the idea of fame, notoriety, and when we think about in many fields, those who end up having notoriety, sometimes, yeah, it's because of the terrible things they do. We can all think of a, a number of financial advisors who have become infamous over the years. We can think about mobsters who have become infamous. Movies have been made. We remember these people over and over again. And even some of the some of those notable famous people um, celebrities. We remember them in part because of the terrible deeds that they've done. I don't need to go on and list the names and people, but I'm pretty sure that even in hearing that in the 30 seconds, we've been able to come up with a number of names on that list. And we remember them for, a lot of times, the horrible things, or even not so horrible, but still not great things that they've done. And yet, at the same time, when you were talking about those who are famous and those who have at the same time strived for doing something meaningful and doing something good, I can think of so many names within so many different fields, at least those with which I am more intimately involved with, where I can think of people who, it's its this interesting balance where they do have quite significant notoriety within the groups that know them. rebbeim who are beyond Chachamim and we we just, we know about them, but of course we know about them. Not everybody else knows about them, more often than not. So, if I can clarify, Akiva... I was not
1: suggesting that simply because someone is well known they've done something inappropriate. I'm suggesting that when you become well known for doing something well that is meaningful that's great. Right? There are celebrities out there who do great things and who help people and who just entertain but do some do so in a wholesome manner and that's great. Thank goodness that they're out there. And because they're excellent at their craft, whether it's in their own circle or in a broader circle, they've become well known. I'm talking about people who are seeking out fame for the sake of fame. People who are, who are that is their end goal. Their end goal is not to provide quality and meaning but rather their, their goal is just to take as many shortcuts as possible to reach the end because that is their goal.
0: Well, but, Avi, mean, I guess the reason why I strayed from that idea is because, realistically, other than those who have become infamous, the truth is is that I think the rest of the people, that when we really think of them and we think of the notoriety that they have, it's not someone who has potentially cut corners, um, at least in those that have really done something that is meaningful. And I guess the part that I was kind of focused on was the fact that there are people who have incredible notoriety and have provided an incredible service to humanity in some way or another. And sometimes you have to wonder, which is, the, which is feeding? You know, is it something where they have done something absolutely phenomenal and then they have notoriety because of that? Or, or rather not or, and they have continued to fulfill that need, that design. It can't help but feel a little good. And I think that in that realm, it kind of becomes... Harder to think about that idea of how do we avoid hubris and then we fall into that trap of idolatry. Which, Avi, I'm tossing it back to you. Yeah, so I, I want to
1: clarify again. I think that it's easy to come up with the top five bad guys, right? The ones who, either because of the media or because of their story, we've just painted with, you know, the absolute. Bad brush. It may be slightly harder, but if we worked at it, we could probably come up with five really good guys, and by guys I mean both genders. But five really good people who are models of um, of goodness and yet have reached notoriety. The majority are in the middle because that's where we all live, right? We're human beings, and so we have moments where we do good, and we have moments where we mess up, right? It, it isn't a mistake that we read this Parsha right before Rosh Hashanah, right? That we are connecting ourselves to this idea of we all make mistakes, and the goal is to return to Hashem. And so, whether we talk about people who in their younger years got involved with certain substance abuse or with um, at risk behavior and then found themselves back on the, on the straight and narrow path later in their lives. Or whether we're talking about people who may have cut some corners when they were just starting out in business, um, but then learned their lessons and became more straightforward in their business dealings. Um, I think we all are not perfect. And so the people who we paint with the brush of greatness or terribleness, are few and certainly far between, with
0: most of us living in the middle. Well maybe that's the point. Maybe that's why we have this balance right here and this this tossing out in the parsha of the idolatry and then the reminder of don't idolise anyone or anything, because nothing's perfect. And you always have a chance to repent. And so, so, Avi, let's talk a little bit about repentance. What does that look like for, for Judaism? And in general, we'll talk maybe a little bit about what that looks like for people. So, my favorite
1: description of repentance comes from the Rambam, Maimonides, Who talks about if you made a mistake? Let me take half a step back. In Judaism, we use the word *chet*, which too often is translated as sin, but it really means to miss the mark, as if you were pulling back on an arrow with a bow, and when you let the arrow fly, you missed the mark, and so. The Rambam talks about this idea of, you made a mistake. And not surprisingly, you may find yourself in the same exact position later in life. And choosing not to make that mistake again is the true definition of teshuvah. as he puts it. Um, to me, that is a beautiful idea the sense of recognizing one's own mistakes and making a conscious choice and effort to not repeat them. At the same time, I think there is another component as well, and that is the idea of apologizing and forgiving, because I think those are two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, when we injure another it's important that we meaningfully and truthfully reflect on what we've done and apologize to them, maybe by trying to put ourselves in their shoes, um, and try to put aside feelings of hurt and feelings of anger that we may feel because others have hurt us, so that when they come to us and ask for their forgiveness, or maybe even when they don't ask us for their forgiveness, we are willing to forgive them as well. Can you uh, enlighten us some more on on that? Because I know there are some programs that include those pieces as their steps, and and I imagine
0: there's pieces you can add to that. So, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it a a step back before we even get to being old enough to, you know, potentially understand what it is that the the steps imply within recovery. And I'm going to quote a different theologian, saying I'm sorry is the first step. And the second is, how can I help? Which comes to us from the great Fred Rogers. Um, not too often do we get to quote other religious clergy in this podcast but you know he kind of says the same thing and i think that pulls the point of where the humanity comes in and where it's not unique to just jews and i think that really this a lot of what's in this parsha can really be expanded upon to those other human beings on the planet because we can all do with a little bit of humble apologizing and correcting our mistakes and yeah that is something that is done often in recovery Um, there is a whole series of, of steps that involve taking account taking stock of the things that you've done wrong who you've wronged and then Going and making an amends to those individuals uh, as best as one can. And I think that it's it's very interesting, of course, that this is one of those pieces that really that's the biggest piece of Elul. Figure out what you've done, think about everything you've done. And, you know, even even in in Yom Kippur, right, when we when we read all of the series of Achates where we missed the mark. You know, I can remember reading that when I was much younger, reading it and and reading the translation, seeing what these things meant, and saying, wow, I, I committed every one of these. Of course, as I got older, I took a look and I said, you know, of course I did. They're all pretty broad. And at the same time, and Avi, I'll, I'll leave you to fill in if you if you know, but I believe there was a great commentator who said that someone who looks at the al khaits and says, I have not committed any of these, is probably the most guilty of committing all of them. And again, it's that opportunity of really taking a look and being able to say, I made a mistake. I screwed up. I did something I shouldn't have done. Sometimes it's as simple as, a word or a tone that might have been disrespectful to one's parents, even if it was unintentional. It could have been putting a morsel of food in your mouth without a bracha, forgetting to thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for providing everything for us. Um, I, I think it's a nice opportunity that we can remember where we have, we have a chance to say that we're sorry, to say that we've made a mistake, and for those who we can be more specific with then of course be more specific take the opportunity to own what you've done and make a mis- and and the mistake that you've made correct it don't repeat it and for those where we maybe can't think of a specific incident just being more mindful of what you're doing being more thoughtful with your actions and your words can truly make a positive impact and a positive difference, probably in ways that we don't know. And maybe that circles back to how do we have someone gain notoriety for the right reasons. Sometimes just being thoughtful with what you do and figuring out how can I make a difference for me in a positive way. And it just so happens that other people notice that that's positive for them too. idea of circumcision. We touched on this uh, a number of weeks ago. In fact, we're closer to lapping it than we are getting back to it. Um, But here it is mentioned again. The idea of "Um Umal Hashem Elokecha et Levavacha Circumcise your heart. Avi. I know that oftentimes you ask me the medical questions, but why don't you tell us a little bit about how someone circumcises their heart? So, if you look at the
1: pasuk, it doesn't actually say that people circumcise their hearts or somebody else's heart, the same way one might do a brit milah, circumcision on an eight-day-old child, but rather here it's talking about Hashem circumcising someone's heart. And I want to suggest that when you look at that word, mal, right, um, we translate it in English to circumcise, but that in reality it has a greater meaning in Hebrew in that it might mean two components that are simultaneous, One is to make a mark, and the second is to remove things that are unnecessary. And so, as part of the Brit Milah, we mark the child, it's true, we do, and we remove something that is unnecessary as part of a covenant with God. Here, Hashem is saying, I will mark on your heart, the connection you have with me, and I will remove that which is unnecessary. And usually when it's talking about your heart in the Torah, it's not talking about our physical heart, but rather it's talking about our emotions and our desires and our motivations. And so the way I understand this pasuk is that Hashem is saying both that Hashem will mark us when we are following Hashem's expectations, and that Hashem will remove impediments from our hearts and from our motivations and from our, our souls as we work to connect with Hashem. So, Akiva, at the end of the parsha, it says, "Rei natati lefanecha hayom et achayim ve'tatov ve'tamavet ve'tara." See that I have given before you today life and goodness and death and evil. Asher anochi mitzavcha hayom um, la'avat Hashem lo kechal alechepedrachav lishmor mitzvotav. That I have commanded you to go in the path of Hashem, and to follow is mitzvot. And it would seem obvious that on the one hand, you have this this idea of living is good, death is bad, right? That seems to be a very simplistic idea. But I think that there are many facets to that when you look at it, in a more mature way. There is the idea that the Jews at that time may have been coming from a place where human sacrifice and therefore death could have been a good thing. They may have been coming from it from a perspective of there are times where life is so hard that maybe not living seems like a better option. Um, And it may have even been where they were looking at this idea of life and saying, what is the purpose? And so I was hoping you might elucidate us on at least some of those in terms of the choice of choosing life over choosing death.
0: So, Avi, I want to make sure I understood your question. It sounds a little bit like what is the meaning of life? Uh, In which case, I will defer to uh, the great uh, text that we have for that Uh, 42. Well, all right, so that might not be satisfactory. Uh, I I don't know what the meaning of life is. Some, much wiser than I, have argued that the meaning of life is to not die. Um, Which, of course, we all fail at, including those who have postulated that the meaning of life was to not die. Um, Others have postulated that the meaning of life is to succeed. What does succeed mean? For some, it's, as we talked before, it's being wealthy, it's being... uh, Uh, known it's being famous even being infamous most of us will exist we will leave some kind of footprint and the question might be well what footprint is being left and, and what footprint is worth leaving um when I, when I was 17, I attended the Alexander Musk High School in Israel program, and one of our teachers asked us at, we were, I believe we were at the gravesite of Chanesanesh, And he asked us to consider who's going to attend our funeral. Who attends your funeral? The people whose lives you touched. Who who wants to hear whether or not you're around? Again, the people whose lives you touched. So, I suppose that really the question is, and the answer is, how can we affect people's lives in a positive way, help them to succeed, help them to grow, help them to know what the next steps are and what to do and what not to do. And maybe that's how we really continue to create a different, a different place that we live in. Um, You know, there's so much focus right now on doing something good for the environment, doing something for the planet. The truth is, is that why do we need to do something good for the planet? Well, I think George Carlin said it really well. We need to do stuff for the planet because we need a place to live. So why do we need to take care of things? Why is environmentalism so important? Because we have to have an environment in which we can live. And why is it so important that we take care of our children? Because we want them to have a better life than we have. And and no, not everybody ascribes to that philosophy. However, I don't know too many people who truly don't want that philosophy they may not know how to get there they may not do the right things as we said before we all make mistakes we all do things that we shouldn't do sometimes knowingly some more often than not unknowingly we all screw up but how is it that we choose life and and choose good i think we just keep trying and I think we try and do whatever we can. And, you know, now we have all sorts of things. People think that they're doing what's good. They may be. They may not be. But whether, whether you believe that this law is okay, that law is okay, I think if we at least looked at these things as people were trying to do something that they thought was the right thing to do, You may not agree with it. I know I don't agree with a lot of things, and Avi, you and I have talked. We agree on a lot of things, and we agree that we don't agree with what a lot of people are doing. But at the same time, I think we also agree that those are people who aren't necessarily looking at things in a nefarious way. So I really think that in order to have any more progress, to move past... Last week's Parsha, where we really talked about, and I admittedly was kind of more in the doldrums about where we are as as humanity, I would say that this is our opportunity. This week, this Parsha, is our opportunity to try and really do something different. And really, that something different is, take someone else's viewpoint, whether you agree with it or not. And consider, at the end of the day, if they mean it in a nefarious way, or if they mean it in a way that they think is the right thing to do. You don't have to agree with it. I don't expect you to. But maybe that's the charge for the Shabbos table this week as well, which is, how can you look at someone's viewpoint, who you wholeheartedly, with every ounce of your being, disagree with, And give them the opportunity to consider for a moment that even if you don't agree, they don't mean harm. Because very few people do purposefully mean harm. Avi, one of the things that's very wonderful about this Parsha is it points out how the Torah is not hidden. The Torah is, is available and, and should be available for, our, for all of us. So why don't you talk about the number of ways in which the Torah is so accessible and how we can add it more to our lives in general. So I think the most important piece
1: is the fact that Moshe, the Torah, Hashem, specifically say, right, um, talking about mm-hmm. that this mitzvah which I am giving you today, this mitzvah of the, of the Torah isn't far from you um, and isn't, isn't hidden from you. Um, It's not up in heaven to say who's going to provide it for us, but rather it's something that's accessible. And I think that this is something that people need to take to heart. Too often I've seen where it's, well, the rabbi does that, right? Um, I grew up in a movement where it was much easier to say, well, the rabbi will be my shaliach, will be my, my uh, messenger for that. So he does all the praying. He does the Torah reading. He's the one who goes to synagogue every week, and I can just show up when it's convenient or when I feel like it or when it's the high holidays. And that's not the way Judaism works. Judaism in and of itself is really meant to be a community of participation in that every single person plays a role. Some are teachers, some are leaders, some are followers, but you can't have one person in the synagogue doing everything. You actually need at least 10 in order to be able to do everything because you need a minyan. And at the same time while while you know there may be somebody who is a trained leader at the same time you might even say one person cannot run everything in the synagogue you need a kohen you need a levi right and and so all of these pieces that you have from the ideal need different people and so it's supposed to be participatory and here the torah is telling us It is available for you to access it. Does that mean that sometimes it's going to be difficult? Yes. As one of my friends says, sometimes you have to chew a little glass to really understand what it's all about. You have to do the hard work to make it happen. But it's possible. Whether you're reading Torah in English, whether you're studying it in Hebrew, whether you're studying it with a friend or a neighbor, it's accessible. There is always something there to learn. I can't imagine taking a piece and saying, nah, didn't get anything out of it. Now, did I get everything out of it? Unlikely. And were there things in it I didn't understand? Also likely. But it's there. It's accessible. It takes a little bit of work, but it can be done. Thank Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.